The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk Talking practice and process with celebrated playwrights and screenwriters. This is the Writer's Toolkit Podcast. Yes, it is. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit Podcast for another round of writer-to-writer conversations. And after the few years that we've had, it was fantastic to be able to travel again, to get back to Europe, to get back to the UK, of course, to see family and friends, and to be able to record an interview for this podcast in person with one of my favourite playwrights. I felt very lucky, very honoured, very privileged to be able to meet this playwright, not only in person, but in his writing space. I am, of course, talking about one of England's most celebrated playwrights, Simon Stevens. Out of sheer excitement and in anticipation of meeting Simon, it was a great chance to reread and revisit a lot of his work, including On the Shore of the Wide World, Harper Reagan, Punk Rock, Marine Parade, Birdland, Blindsided, his adaptation of The Cherry Orchard, Song from Far Away, Heisenberg, and of course, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Simon's adaptation of Mark Haddon's novel, which earned him the Best Play Award at the Olivier's in 2013, the same award at the Tony's in 2015, altogether the play scooped up five Tony Awards, six Drama Desk Awards, seven Olivier Awards. Time magazine called the play unmissable and life-affirming, certainly true for audiences, and perhaps life-changing for the playwright himself. Coming up... You know, sharing the residency at the National Theatre with Mark Haddon at the same time, that was really good fortune. And then him asking me to make that adaptation financially changed all our life. Right. You know, that is just really fucking fortunate. The Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Calbergi. Born in Stockport, Greater Manchester, Simon Stevens graduated from the University of York with a degree in history. Since Bring Me Sunshine premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 1997, his plays have been translated into over 20 languages and have been produced on at least four continents. The fact that Matthew and Drama have now published five volumes of his collected plays speaks not only to a vibrant and enduring career, but the sheer brilliance of his writing which continues to feature prominently in the repertoires of theatres globally, resonating with and captivating audiences. His work is a mainstay of modern British theatre, with his plays being staged at iconic venues in the UK, such as the National Theatre, the Royal Court, the Bush, the Young Vic, the Royal Exchange and the Lyric Hammersmith. As well as his impressive catalogue of around 40 produced plays, Simon's influence as a 21st century playwright is amplified by his impassioned collaborations with a roster of equally celebrated directors, including Sebastian Newbling, Sean Holmes, Katie Mitchell, Marianne Elliott, Eva Van Hover and Sarah Frankham. The list of players to Simon's credit is way too long to include here, but the standout favourites for me have got to be Marine Parade and On the Shore of the Wide World, not forgetting the highly original players he's written post-Curious Incident, including Birdland, Blindsided and Heisenberg. In fact, one of the things I was most keen to ask Simon was has such a claim afforded him the freedom to write with complete abandon or brought with it pressures to deliver the next big commercial success? While diving into each of Simon's plays individually is perhaps beyond the scope of this podcast, what I hope I have captured here is an intimate chat with the man himself about life in his workspace, and perhaps a little of what goes into him arriving at his desk in writing mode. How's the coffee? <clears throat> yeah, good. He asks nervously. Hot, hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Too hot to tell you right now. Over the course of his career, Simon has taught playwriting at a number of schools and theatre companies, most famously heading up the Young Writers Programme at the Royal Court Theatre. 
More recently, he was made a professor at the Manchester School of Writing at Manchester Metropolitan University. But let's go back to the beginning, because Simon's teaching career all started with an albeit brief stint as a high school teacher at a school in Dagenham. And I was curious to ask the now decorated playwright what he thinks that young teacher might have made of such success. Okay, I'm ready to go whenever you are. Mm. What would what would teacher Simon have made of of this of where you are now? Well, I want to take that question really seriously and really try and go back into that. You know, I was 27. I can look at 27 year olds now. Um, they seem really young. The idea of putting them in a classroom anywhere, let alone in Dagenham, <laughs> seems kind of reckless. Um, Bloody hell! It's funny because I never, I never really kind of think like that. But I think he would have been really, 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 you know, happy. I think I'm, re- I, I, I look at my my kind of working life, and and I've been really fortunate. There've been a couple of cases. God, you really disarmed me that, with that question because I'm trying to think about it really seriously. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I, I find it difficult. Kind of like I've always found taking praise really hard. Like when I was at when I was at school, when I was a kid, I was really bad at it, uh, and it's actually um, it's really important to be able to do. I'm always telling writers and, and actors and directors that it's it's a really graceful thing to be able to do is to accept people's praise because if you if you don't, and I've been to see other people's performances and then praise them afterwards, and yeah. then they kind of dismiss it, and actually they think they're being humble, but it doesn't come across as humility. It comes yes. across as real arrogance. An right. unintentionally a really arrogant thing to do because when somebody praises you, what they're doing is they're exposing themselves. You know, advocacy always requires a level of exposure, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and to be able to say to somebody, I loved what you did with that, you're opening yourself up. And then to reject that is a yeah, really, yeah, yeah. really yeah. wounding thing, even yes. if even if the intention is to be humble about it. Yeah. And of course, on one level you want you want to hear it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all those there's all those contradictory kind of things going on. Uh, I, I find it difficult identifying things that I'm good at or things that I've done well. I think there's two characteristics which I would which I would acknowledge, you know, without without much hesitation. One, I work really hard, and I I do work hard. You know, it's not the most important thing in my life. My work, it's really not. You know, the 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 kids and the family and uh, infinitely more important. And uh, and I never miss a deadline. Is <laughs> the other thing. So those are my two characteristics. I'd say those are the things I'm good at. Yeah. And I hope the teacher Simon would have been pleased that I've cut, that I've done my homework. Right. <laughs> <laughs> always got it in on time. And so while while like not while kind of like sticking up for the fact that I've done I've worked really hard. I've also been on, there's been on occasion. There's two or three occasions in my life when I've just been blessed with real luck. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and also to enjoy it. You know. Two weeks ago, I was in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and work had taken me there. Right. And, I, and then Polly came over, my wife came over, and we had a driving trip around the Rocky Mountains. Oh, and right. it's just like, playwriting brought me here. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I look at this room, like, this was, this is like my dream room. Right. When I was a kid, this yeah. is like what I dreamed about. And it's like, that's because of playwriting. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I hope teacher Simon would have been like, yeah, man, I, I love teaching. I really love teaching. I really enjoy continuing to teach now. But yeah, I think he would have been really, really happy. I think, you know, when I look back on it, the real, the real kick has been the, the people I've worked with. Yeah. Just the intelligence and the creativity and the kind of vitality of thought of some of the people that I've worked with and some of the friends that I've made. That, that has been, 
extraordinary. And the intelligence and, uh, and openness of audiences, you know, to be able to put a play in front of an audience and to have them open as they respond to it, that's a profound privilege. And that, that has been... I think the thing is, yeah, I think both, both teaching and writing um, are fundamentally optimistic jobs. You know, the, the, the work which is built on a fundamental faith sense of optimism. You know, when you're teaching a class, and it's a hard job. It's a consistently draining job. It's the most draining job I ever did. It's predicated on the assumption that young people have the potential to leave that classroom in a slightly better place mm. than they came into it. Yeah. And I think theatre has the same kind of optimism. Yeah. You know, regardless of the subject of a play, regardless of how dark it is, regardless of how bleak it is, the very process of putting a play on together and putting it in front of an audience is an yeah. optimistic thing, right? Yeah. And and the amount of theatre audiences who have looked at work or engaged with work that I've made, sometimes that work has been weird or difficult or strange or full right. of sex or swearing or violence or all the good things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, yeah. uh, but and they've stayed with it, and they've kind of thought about it, and that's been an amazing privilege yeah. to have those that, to have those collaborators and have those audiences have, yeah. has been a real, real, real privilege. If anyone hasn't yet discovered the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast, do check it out. Simon hosted the first five seasons, interviewing around fifty amazing playwrights, and he begins each episode asking his guest to recall their first theatrical experience. <laughs> I, want, I want to ask you that, but I want to build on it, and I want to ask right. you also. You've mentioned um, Taxi Driver as being a kind of galvanising mm. yeah. movie that you've returned to, you know, yeah. again and again. Yeah. If there was a night in the theatre that you could return to oh, again man. and again, that would be kind of transformative in the same way, perhaps that Taxi Driver has been as a movie. Mm. Can you recall one that stuck with you? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Uh, the, the, it's, it's really hard because the chronology is a bit blurry, right? When you kind of when you're in you, when you're a kid, uh, I can't quite remember which came first. Uh, my mum was in amateur dramatics in uh, the local tennis club in Stockport. I'm pretty sure I went to see her in some things that I don't know what they were. Uh, when I was about nine or ten or something, uh, and my uncle was in amateur dramatics as well in Altrincham, uh, and so that was kind of a presence in in my life. I went to see him in The Long, The Short, and The Tall, uh, and a production of Great Expectations. I think before that, so that would have been, that I've been quite old for that. I would have been like eleven or twelve. Okay, um, you know, which is quite old. I think my early my early theatrical memories really though were going as a kid again early teen years or you know kind of nine I guess ten eleven twelve thirteen or whatever. My my little brother is three years younger than me, so we'd need to wait for him to be an age where he could come with us. Right, would probably have been. Going into Manchester from Stockport uh, to see shows at Christmas, yeah. what I would understand now as being touring West End shows, okay. um, that I, I wouldn't have clocked at the time that they were touring West End shows. Uh, and the one I remember most vividly is seeing Michael Crawford in uh, Barnum right, at right. the Manchester Opera House. Okay. Uh, I don't know what year that was, but I think I'd have been about 11 years old. Okay. And I remember he... Um, I remember he, uh, at the end of that show, I don't know if you know Barnum or know that, you know, it's yeah. the story of the the circus impresario. Yeah. Is it P.T. Barnum? Yeah, Greatest Showman. Yeah, yeah, the great, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I had a really great night. I really enjoyed myself. 
Um, and it ended the night with him abseiling from the upper circle down onto the stage. Wow. And I remember thinking, that's really cool. Wow. And I, I always say, if anybody ever ever promises that in their production they're going to include abseiling from the upper circle onto the stage, right, right, then right. I will give them the rights to oh, do yeah. any play of mine yeah. <laughs> without hesitation. So, in, in you know, in some ways that would be a theatrical moment that, that kind of yeah. st- still lives with me with the insistence that Taxi Driver does. Because I came to theatre later, um, I think sometimes you those those type of kind of formative experiences yeah. are probably you probably capture in adolescence more. Right. You kind of you get them when you're kind of sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they just kind of hock into you. And because I didn't really go to the theatre seriously until until I was older, so things like I remember seeing although I gather it was quite a controversial production subsequently, Brian Murray's production at the Royal Exchange Theatre with school of Macbeth with um, David Threlfall as Macbeth and Francis Barber as Lady Macbeth. I remember the viscerality and kind of the, the mess of that really, really living with me. I think the one, if, if you, the sim, you know, this isn't a question you're asking, so it's a bit unfair to kind of impose this question. We're, like, I think I, I, always, I always maintain the best that I've seen is uh, Eva von Hover's uh, Roman Tragedies. The first time he brought that over to London before View from the Bridge, so before he was a rock star, uh, he bought what was then Tenille Group Amsterdam, is now the International Theatre Amsterdam. He bought them over to the Barbican, um, and I was going to work with them. I kind of accepted a commission to write a new play for Sebastian Nubling and, and Tenille Group Amsterdam to write this version of the, tr- of the Trial of Ubu, and this is like 2010. Um, and I'd never seen their work. I'd kind of like watched videos of it, and it's this one video is always shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, regard, you know, regardless of what it is, it's just always shit. <laughs> um, so that didn't really come, so I didn't really get it. And then I remember, um, the producer asking me if I'd come and see Roman Tragedies in London, and it was in Bel, it was in Dutch, and it was seven hours, six hours maybe. Right. And there right. wasn't, there's no interval. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, and Antony and Cleopatra. Okay. All three plays. Wow. Played consecutively without an interval in Dutch. In Dutch. Would you come and see it? <laughs> Gosh. I remember, I remember asking, asking Polly if she wanted to come and her yeah. look, and it was like a Sunday afternoon, and her looking at me like, you're fucking joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to go do that on my Sunday afternoon. Um, and I, I went and the, 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 the actor, the, the Dutch actor Hans Kesting, just before he came to London had broken his leg and rather than pull out, he did the whole performance in a wheelchair in a cast with a leg cast. I swear to God, it was fucking amazing. Right. right, 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 right. <laughs> the, 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 the humanness and the visual imagination, the psychological detail and the kind of brilliance of the acting mm. and the brilliance of the scale of imagination evo's imagination really really untethered yeah what they did instead of having intervals was the producer said to me that they were basing up they based it on um at the time the tv shows prison break and 24 were really okay. were really okay. kind of popular tv shows yeah, yeah, yeah. and they said this based on the kind of those um the idea of a political thriller like that okay. so every 20 minutes there'd be a pause right and you can move around the theater wow. they uh, 
there was seats okay. on the stage. And but the, the cast was still... The cast was still there, and the doors of the theatre remained open throughout the show. Okay. So if you wanted to leave at any point and just go and get some food or yeah, go and get yeah. a drink, you could you could, and then come back, wow. which is more akin to the way Shakespeare was produced in the okay. Globe in the 16th century, right? Okay. It wasn't... In those days, it wasn't that you went and sat down politely and watched right. the whole play. Yeah, you know, yeah. you could come and go. You'd go and have a beer, yeah. go and watch a bullfight, or not bullfight, it's not fucking strange. <laughs> Cockfight, <laughs> you know, bear fight or a bear. What go and bait a bear? It's like a box set. Exactly. Yeah, binge watching. Yeah, completely. And it was and Casting's performance is still one of the best bits of acting I've ever seen. Yeah, I think that still sits in. Okay, sits in my DNA when I think about it. I kind right. of feel like shaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've, you've talked about mm. uh, wanting to write a long project or a long piece of theatre, yeah. and is that yeah. you think where that, that's where it comes from? Yeah, right? maybe that. Um, you know, a, a kind of sense of all things like um, Angels in America yeah. and Antipodean production that I saw when I was just about 2000 when I was really starting out my working life professionally uh, the Belvoir Street production of uh, Cloud Street that was co-written by three different writers and I think one of them was undropped and, and I can't remember who the other two were which is extraordinarily rude sorry writers of Cloud Street but that was kind of an epic family drama that lasted kind of seven eight hours that I saw in the Olivier and that was the same thing where they had a a lengthy interval like a 50 minute interval okay, okay. so you could go and get some dinner Yeah, you kind of watch yeah. it from 4 till 7 right. and then have a break and then get some dinner and then watch it from 8 till 10 okay. or whatever that's kind of sense of immersion and I got that when I saw Marianne Elliott's Angels in America that sense of immersion it, it, that's, I'd, I'd, I'd love to aspire to something like that that's mm. one of the things I'm working on at the moment I mentioned before we hit record, I was listening to Radio 4's Only Artists series with yourself in conversation with the brilliant Simon Armitage. Totally wonderful man. Your enthusiasm in asking Simon... His, but his stationery and oh, yeah. uh, what size <laughs> notebooks he uses for his projects yeah. and you're almost like a kid in a sweatshop. I miss the meat and drink of it. That's right. what writers really want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what, fo- what font size do you write on? What, what font do you use? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really, really important. Isn't it? In a way that alienates anybody who's not a writer. Yes. But if you're a writer hearing writers talk about that stuff, it's just like, oh, yeah. Let's <laughs> talk about that. Were you a kid who was in the stationery cupboard at school? No, it's come to me in adulthood, weirdly. It's, it's, it's something that I've got more into in my kind of 40s and 50s. Okay. Do you think it speaks to procrastinating? You know, or I'll, I'll buy a new book because I, I, I'm not ready to sit down and do this yet. Or, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll dick around with post-it notes and, you know... <laughs> Um, uh, I, I've never been a fan of the post-it note or what's the other thing that writers, some writers do and I'm, I know they do it really well so I'm not questioning but the other thing I've never used is index cards right Right. you know you hear writers talk yeah. about using index yeah. cards and kind of um, never, David Gregg is brilliant on index cards hearing him talk about how he uses those is really really wonderful um, I don't know if it's procrastination I think it's really really worth I'm picking that as well. well. I feel like for you it can't be, given the body of work and the volume of... <laughs> I mean... If you Google, you kind of the first thing that comes up is Britain's most prolific playwright. I know. So I, 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 had, I did have that conversation with Jack Thorne when we were doing the podcast with him, uh, and he was really pleased that I didn't use the adjective prolific to describe him. Right. Because like, both of us always kind of like worry when people describe us as prolific, because they, they're always choosing the adjective prolific rather than good. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. Like Jez Butterworth is not prolific, but right. but every fucking decade he seems to write the defining play of the yeah. decade. So it's like, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, David Harrow was not prolific. Uh, I've had that conversation with David Gregg as well, who's another prolific playwright, right. who kind of lives in the presence of another playwright who's not not that prolific, but like just like right writes one play a decade, and it's just fucking definitive, right? <laughs> Yeah. Lucy Preble's not prolific when it comes to a theatre work, but yeah. you know she'll write a play every ten years and it's fucking sensational. Um, you know I definitely procrastinate, but I procrastinate by looking at kind of like transfer rumours on the internet. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know the internet is a it's a perilous thing, right? Because you can um, you can kind of legitimately. Oh yeah. Google something for an element of work for something for something of work you do. And I was thinking about this the other day. Sorry, this is tangential. I was thinking about the other day. You know, we have this romantic notion of writers who, um, in in the nineteenth century, right up to like the nineteen eighties, would kind of spend their hours in the British Library, kind of like trawling the stacks of the British Library, looking for details that are going to inform the latest latest work. That's just fucking googling. They were, <laughs> they were just like googling slowly. Yes. <laughs> but when you hear when you. Think about when you think about going in the stacks of the British Library, yeah. it's kind of conjured with all these kind of romantic notions of kind of like dusty research that somehow is going to kind of reimagine the canon. And, and they're just fucking googling, but what they're doing actually is they're thinking. And I do think when we procrastinate, when we get our notebooks or we get our stationery right, or we spend hours looking to see whether Manchester United have bought Frankie de Jong yet or anything right. like that, you're fundamentally, what you're doing is you're just gestating and you're just thinking. And playwrights are not novelists. I've got a couple of novelist friends and it, it's important for them, for some of them in different ways, for them to, um, you know, get up in the morning and, and write 4,000 words or 2,000 words or whatever, or they can't have the lunch until they've written 1,000 words or something yes. like that. And I respect that and it's important. But that would be a total waste of time for a playwright. Yeah. You know, it's a, that, that's not how we make our, make our living. It's not through language. What we, what we do when we make a play is we consider the behavior of human beings. That, that's, the, the essence of that is not word count. The essence of that is thought, you know, an insight. And, and sometimes if you need to put yourself in a space where you're going to percolate an idea or you're going to gestate an idea, sometimes the, the, the thing to do is to alphabetize your bookshelves or kind of like, you know, to waste time looking at lies on the internet. Yes. Or to sort your stationery out. And that, that has a value in it, I think. Yeah. I'd kind of stick up for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and also we're living at a time where we're facing many kind of like complex, contradictory and complementary catastrophes and trying to make sense of what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And how we're going to manage living through this, how we're going to survive it, how our kids are going to survive it is kind of one of the jobs of writers of our time, I think. Mm. Mm. You know, I think it's important that we take that seriously. I think one of the one of the problems that we're kind of living through um, uh, is 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 that we 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 found ourselves technologically in a position where we never get bored because right. as soon as the human mind kind of defaults to boredom, now we just reach for the these astonishing computers in our pockets yeah. and 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 scroll Twitter or Instagram yeah. or. Uh, manchestereveningnews.com <laughs> right. yeah. you know yeah. um, and I think there's a great deal to be said for the value of boredom I think there's a great deal to be said for the creative wealth that can come from sitting in a room getting bored mm. you know because it's because I remember talking to teachers about this I remember talking to a teacher of a school one time and I was 
asking about kids and boredom and uh, saying that she thought it was really exciting when kids got bored. Yes. Because when you get bored, that's when your mind goes to creativity. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's something... Sometimes it's a really useful thing for a writer to identify in themselves. Yeah. The value of being bored. And if that, if that involves buying new stationery, then just fill yeah, the boots yeah. with new stationery, mate. Okay, right. <laughs> Since I have the honour of being in your, in your <laughs> many people, dream room. I think this is the first interview I've done in this room. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And we kind of really finished the room. It's not finished, really. There's things we, we want to do to it. But um, we kind of finished it at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. So it's been two years now in this kind of condition. Uh, and you're the first interview. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm honoured. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the podcast has definitely peaked. So it's... Uh... <laughs> Will you, for the benefit of our listeners, give us an audio tour of the space? <laughs> All right. Okay. So the two things which will damage, you can help me with this, because right. the two things that will damage my uh, audio tour will be my inability to speculate as to the size of things. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm not very good at like saying how big things okay. are. Okay. Okay. And my colour blindness. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> So we can do this together. So it's kind of like, it's a slightly off square room. Three metres by three, four metres. Three metres. by four, yeah. Three by four, that. yeah. On one side uh, is, is is quite a nice, but quite small kind of like 1960s style desk, which mm. is where I do my writing, uh, with a kind of really battered chair. That I love that chair. Yeah, I quite like it as well, but it's really scuffed up, isn't it? It's a, ah. a bit of a bit of a shame that, it, I, I see, when I write, I get very kind of excited and very right. agitated. So the joints are all <laughs> kind of battered there's a massive uh desktop mac which kind of dominates the desk and a kind of angle poise light there is there ordinarily is but i'm packed because i'm going on the train today um a pile of notebooks which i work on on the desk and also i was given this really beautiful thing but i'm going to show you which is ludicrous uh on on a podcast but um one of my oldest friends gave me this my birth my 50th birthday and it's one of my favorite things which is uh, a Cavaco um, um, ink pen. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, and it's really... And I write oh, I love that. It's really beautiful, isn't it? Isn't that gorgeous? Um, you know, and I've never really written with a fountain pen before, but this is incredibly writable. It doesn't leak. It's really, right. really nice. And just the design and the physical yeah. process of holding it is really satisfying. I anyway, love that. So that's my desk. To the right of the to the right of my desk, and this is where I really wish you were on YouTube rather than uh, rather than run the podcast, is my Gretsch guitar. Right. Which is a kind of uh I've always fucking wanted a Gretsch guitar. Okay. It's like it's a particular brand of guitar that both Johnny Marr and Roy Orbison and John Lennon used to play. Right. Um it's semi acoustic, it's kinda of orange, beautiful kind of orange kind of like wood. Yeah. Yeah. I always really wanted one and was never financially in a position to be able to get one until about six years ago. And then I remember one time Having, uh, having lunch with Lucy Kirkwood and we'd had a bottle of wine and it was really great we were really, and I was telling that I'd always telling her that I'd always wanted an electric mm. guitar and we'd had a bit to drink and she's like I think you should just go and get one right 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 right, right. <laughs> so I did that's like one of my prized possessions and then on the shelf to the right is and I don't know is, is it a terrarium so I was going to say terrarium yeah, yeah terrarium that my son made for me okay and then the terrarium is surrounded by my collection of CDs and then we've got two rooms two no three walls on the room are floor to ceiling kind of bookshelves this is a, a writer's dream kind of <laughs> yeah. Aladdin's cave yeah it's quite fun with a library kind of vibe. these lights is, is kind of like a library yeah, the vibe light, right? that is my wife designed the lights and, and, and the colour is kind of like a very 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 dark grey yeah it's really I really love it and I've got DVDs up there which I never watch 
because everything's online now, which is a bit of a shame, because I like the DVD as well, an object. if you're a fan of the physical, tangible yeah, thing, exactly. you've got to keep that exactly. stuff. Right. And below, I've got telly below that, and then below that I've got my vinyl collection, which is kind of four shelves now. I don't know how many records that is. Between two and four hundred, probably. Maybe, maybe less. I don't know. And what is the bulk of that? Is that What's your go-to? There's about 50 records which I inherited from my wife's dad, which are all classical music. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and, and, and they're beautiful old kind of Deutsche Grammophone records that um, I don't listen to anywhere nearly as much as I should. And it's an inherited record collection, so there's some things in there which I don't love as much as others. I'm not a massive fan of Tchaikovsky or Brahms. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of Brahms and Tchaikovsky, but some beautiful Beethoven string quartets in there. Right. And amazing Bach, um, which... And, and I don't feel a kind of sense of ownership of classical music. It, mm. didn't, it doesn't come naturally to me, but I sometimes really enjoy just sitting listening to that. Yes. Um, this is what I got for my 17th birthday instead of driving lessons. Right. It's a box set. Oh, wow. It's just the entire wow. history of Atlantic Rhythm and Blues, which is a fucking glorious thing. And a little bit battered now. Oh, I guess, to, does it still play as well, is it? Yeah, no, it's not bad, actually. Well, I used to be a DJ. Right. Um, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I used to DJ a lot. And I was very irresponsible with vinyl care. You know, I wasn't really a geek. Yeah. when it came to looking after records and so they did get a bit left out often and a bit scratched up but it still plays pretty well there's two framed photographs in here um, of photos taken by the photographer Kevin Cummings right. who's a Manchester based rock and roll photographer okay. um, one is of a young Marquis Smith uh, and I always say that The Fall were came, kind of maybe my favourite band. Right, right. I really, really loved The Fall. And and another uh, of Debbie Harry. And Blondie were a hell of a band. I used yeah. to love Blondie. Um, behind the Debbie Harry frame picture is a, a drinks cabinet, which has at the moment four bottles of Japanese whiskey, right. which is my favourite whiskey. Really? I really, really love Japanese wow. whiskey. Okay. I don't know if you're a whiskey drinker. I am. Um, but Have you had I... Japanese whiskey? No. Welcome to my world. Right, If, okay. if this was later, and we're, yes. we're meeting at nine o'clock in the morning or you know 10 o'clock in the morning if this was six o'clock in the afternoon yeah, yeah, yeah. we could have ended the conversation right. with a little bit of uh <laughs> Suntory or uh yoichi great whiskey and the drinking and writing no never, no no there's all kind of romantic connotations aren't there about mm. writers and self-destruction yes that yeah. um i think are really worth being alert to yeah. and cautious yeah. about uh i'd i'd write sober and I maybe have a, a couple of too many coffees. I need to watch that as well with my fucking blood pressure. Right. God, I hate being in my 50s. Yeah. Um, I've only written one play where I was consciously kind of drinking while I was writing, and that was not a kind of massive success. So I wasn't, it was, if it was Curious Incident, then I'd be like, oh, right. I should do it all the time. It is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> you got the plays behind you. Yeah. So that row there is all plays, uh, mm-hmm. and that's alphabetized. And then on this one, this is slightly bigger books, which is a slightly more chaotic and you know kind of like dislocated collection yeah uh, and then to my left here I've got all my notebooks oh this is one of this wow yeah uh, the used oh, notebooks um, the new notebooks um, I've got this shelf here which is this is a bit embarrassing but that's no. the books <laughs> that's like the Simon Stevens books which yeah. I'm really you know but don't you think glancing at that sometimes when you're in the trenches is a kind of <laughs> reminder of you know like I never glance at it enough no? actually I should do really shouldn't I I should enjoy it more um, I really like the I like the foreign ones like there's uh, translations of the plays in Portuguese and in Japanese which uh, oh, are that's re- gonna be interesting. really really beautiful yeah I made a play in Tokyo that's ne- never it's not been done in where is it? It's not, it's not being done in, in English. Directed by Sean Holmes at the Metropolitan Theatre in Tokyo. Mm. 
And that's it. Wow. And the text is all printed. It goes from right to left. Right, right. From, from what we would perceive as being the back to the front. Wow. Um, and the lines of dialogue fall down the page rather than across the page. Gosh. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful yeah, paper yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, and then at the top of this one is all my books about music. On the very bottom shelf is all my books about Man United. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so wow. that's, that's the tour around my room. So jump back to the notebooks then. Yeah. How do you work? Is it, are, you, are you one notebook, one project? Are you across yeah, books? Yeah, I tend to be. Because I'm going away at the moment um, um, yeah. for the day, they're all in my bag, but I'll get them out and show you. So I tend to have... One notebook per project. I'm working, on th- I'm working on about 17 different projects at the moment, different stages. Right. But I've got three notebooks on the go at the moment. This is a... I don't know what the working title is. Ne- neither an arc nor Nightbone. They're not, they're not the right title for this. Mm. This is a piece that I'm writing for uh, an augmented reality producer, a guy called Todd Eckert, for his production company, The Tin Drum. Uh, he's making a piece at the moment with Roichi Sakamoto, and he's made a piece uh, with... Marina Abramovich and I, I saw the Abramovich piece and I saw a piece he'd made at the uh, V&A at the, the architecture exhibition and it's really really beautiful and really fascinating mm. um, the experience will be you, you come into a room with kind of like 50 or 100 other people and each of you put a headset on and then four actors will appear out of each corner of your consciousness oh, wow. Uh, and they'll talk to you. So you're hearing them on the head on the headphones. You hear them on the headphones. Yeah. They'll appear in augmented reality. So it could be like fucking Robert De Niro is suddenly there talking to you. Wow. But rather than a complete submersion mm. in an alternative reality, it will be like they're walking into the space. Wow. Like a hologram walking into the space okay. with you. So that's one thing that I'm doing for him. This is a piece that I'm working in development with the choreographer Image and Knight and the uh, and the drum and bass DJ High Contrast a project that we've been working on for a couple of years which we just had a workshop of at the weekend and then the commission at the moment is um, another commission for Japan Fortune wasn't a commission Fortune was a commission for the National Theatre in London that was rejected the fuckers right (laughs) (laughs) um, but uh, this is going to be a new new commission for Parco and I would like these what these are kind of like fundamentally A5 these are slightly smaller than A5 um, they're artist note artist notebooks rather than writing notebooks because I like blank pages. Right, right. Because what you can do with a blank page is it can be really messy, mm. and you can vary the size of the text. So the first page, the uh, the first page of the Japanese notebook, it's just a list of a load of shit I've got to kind of get through. Films I want to watch and books I want to read. I want to see Drive My Car. I didn't see that. I want to watch Ozu films and watch more Studio Ghibli. Uh, I want to read more Mishima and have a look at the Ring the Ring novels. Mm. Listen to more Ryuichi Sakamoto and look at Japanese contemporary plays and listen to the wow. music of Mertzbau. Have yeah. you come across Mertzbau? No, no, no. is fucking amazing. Wow. Uh, people should all stop this podcast now and l- listen to Mertzbau on Spotify. M-E-R-Z-B-O-W. It's Japanese noise music. Okay. It really is just noise. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'll, uh, and I'll sit and listen to Mertzbau. This is, this is one of the exercises I'm doing for the Japanese play. Um, I'll sit and listen to things like this. They're literally white noise. Like. Yeah, yeah, but it's more, there's something in there. There is kind of melody in there. 
This is Spiral Blast by Merchfell. Did you listen to that while you're Yeah, writing? listen to it while I'm writing. Right. So put the headphones on, play it loud and just start writing. Okay. And just see what comes out. Like a free writing exercise Completely free writing exercise. And what I'll do is I'll fill the notebooks with things like that. So I'll spend like part of my work on the Japanese project. I'll sit normally in this chair that I'm sitting in now. I'll read for an hour. I'm, the moment I'm reading Mishima's, um, yeah, the Sea of Fertility tre- Tetralogy. Okay. I don't know if you've come across Mishima. No, no. He was kind of a deranged fascist, but he was an exquisite writer. He committed mm. Harry Carey um, and had a sentimental hankering for the return of the Japanese Empire. There's a beautiful film about him made by Paul Schrader, I think, with music by Roichi Sakamoto. The conversation continues after these words from our sponsors. Hey there, Mark Sanderson here, author of A Screenwriter's Journey to Success with my script tip for today. You know, your talent is as important as your professional attitude and work ethic. It takes all three and a little bit of luck to survive over this long-haul screenwriting journey. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Since I had the honor of being invited into Simon's wonderful writing room, I wanted to find out more about his process and what a typical writing day looks like. Uh, I get up, feed the kids. I normally do a bit of exercise, which might be like going for a, uh, going on the peloton for a bit, having a bit of kind of like workout, um, maybe go for a swim, come back and I'll do it. I've started in the last kind of year or two, just doing kind of 10 minutes. Like it's not proper meditation, but mm. 10 minutes, just kind of like breathing. Yeah. And just kind of, and just sitting, getting into my body and getting into my breath. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I value physical health. When I did when I was, mm-hmm. I didn't when I was in my twenties. Yeah. When I was in my twenties, I would have the notion that the important thing to keep me writing is to kind of smoke loads of cigarettes and drink loads of booze right uh, and then then I'd kind of like touch onto the kind of you know the genius of whichever kind of spirit that I've basically fundamentally inherited from Nick Cave right right is <laughs> <laughs> gonna, gonna grace me yes uh, and now I'm older and kind of more worried that death is not just an abstract that is inevitable but actually a thing that is starting to happen to friends of mine right um, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know I kind of that's confronting isn't it uh, yeah yeah it is and uh, um, and also kind of I like become aware that my mind is part of my body mm. and my mind is the kind of muscle that sustained my work from my whole working life yeah. and it kind of sits in this body Yes. so I've got to look after it you know if you're, if you're a professional athlete if you're yeah. a football player you don't spend you don't spend your entire working day playing football you know so you'll you'll do things like you'll go for massages and you'll go for saunas and you'll kind of really kind of work about getting the body in shape and I think the same is true for artists mm. and their minds these yeah. things that we've got to look after your tool. It's our tool. Yeah. yeah, we've got to look after the tool. Yeah. So I will do a bit of that, and then I'll sit and I'll read for an hour. This is a comparatively new thing for me, okay. and it's and, and the danger now. I think I don't know how you get this with your work, but the danger now is like we get so many fucking emails all the time. There's so much admin that has the feeling of urgency, but is not important. Yeah. You know, the thing, the thing that you've got to identify as an artist, I think, or just as a human, it's probably like good life advice is discern the distinction between the urgent and the important. Yeah. And so much of our admin has the energy of urgency about it, but isn't important. Yes. And so much of the work that is important isn't colored by urgency. Mm. You know, so the important work is sometimes slow. Yes. And the important work has sometimes you've got to take care of the deadline yourself if it has any deadline at all and that might be kind of reading for an hour and meditating and doing a workout yes you know that that is important if not urgent you know that's you know hanging out walking the dog yeah (laughs) Yeah, 
the, the, the key for me in recent years has been just kind of, you know, not feeling as I've got to reply to every email within minutes of its arrival mm. or even within hours of its arrival yeah. or even within days of its arrival. You know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when writers had letters and correspondences, to yes, <laughs> which, yes, which, yes. which like the, you know, yeah. uh, like, like, like the kind of notions of kind of, uh, writers Googling in, right. in the kind of the dusty stacks of the British Library. Yeah. All these kind of like l- collected letters of writers are basically just their fucking admin. They were, yes. <laughs> yes. you know, yes. but they did what they didn't do is, is, you know, Chekhov didn't write his letters to Gorky, um, within minutes of receiving a letter from no. Gorky. <laughs> So, so really, really, I'd, I'll try and do my emails one day a week, but the rest of the time would be kind of like reading. And then, and then I will do, I'll sit with my headphones and I'll sit with my Mertz bow or mm. my, it's not always Mertz bow, otherwise I'd have a kind of brain on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Rochi Sakamoto or, or who, there's a, I've got a kind of playlist of different things that I'm listening to for each project. Yeah. And I'll do automatic writing and I'll, do you want some more coffee? Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and, and I'll fill up the, uh, I'll fill up the notebooks. Handwritten, kind of, uh, with, with my new fountain pen or my, not new fountain pen, my old fountain pen, which are kind of like, to varying degrees, processes of free writing and responses to the sources that I've identified that I need to work on. Mm, mm. And I'll fill the notebooks up and I'll get them full. And here's the, there's like a lot of full notebooks. I don't know. I love that. A, lo- a lot of the, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to open these and they won't be full at all, <laughs> the, uh, which is really embarrassing. When you find one that you love, like this artist one, do you buy stock of them? Because I do this. Yeah, I, I yeah, that yeah. I'm going to yeah, find it again. Yeah, yeah. The, I really like these ones as well. These, the, I use these ones with the ring binder right. for, this isn't writing, this is admin. If I go for a meeting, you know, a, a reading of a play or whatever, I'll make my notes about the readings. Um, yeah. So the next thing that I do is I'll type up the notebook. Oh, so will I'll, you? I'll fill the notebook up and then I'll type it all up. In every, its entirety? Every, in its entirety, wow. every word. Wow. Yeah? Because the thing about that is it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Two, two real things come out of it. One, I will notice that I, through the free writing exercise... I've written things that I don't remember writing and the process of typing it up will be a discovery of things that have come out of my mind yeah. and, and and they will often be really surprising. Right. And it'll be like, oh, fuck, that's interesting. Yeah. A lot of it's negligible, but a lot of it is really interesting. Oh, I love that. And what I'm doing when I type up the notebook is I'm kind of hunting for characters. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like I'm, I'm actively on the search for characters. Right. And the other thing about it is because it is boring. I said earlier about the creative value of boredom. Mm. You know, I will, that will be when I will get ideas. Yeah. When I'm typing up the notebook, not actively looking for ideas. Right. Doing another activity. Yes. That just, it'll release something in the back of my mm. brain that I wasn't hunting for. Uh, and that will be when I start finding story and I start finding character. And then when you go to pages, when you when you sit down to start writing the piece or the, the work, for a first draft, are you on computer, by hand, what, typewriter? Um, what, so there's a, there's a bit in between typing okay. up the notebook and going to write the scenes, mm. which is the planning stage. Mm. And for me, when I did those podcasts, I think in the end I interviewed 46 different playwrights. Right. Every different conversation you realise 
realise that every single playwright has an entirely particular and different approach. Yeah. I think of all the playwrights that I spoke to, my approach to planning is more rigorous than yes. than anybody else I spoke to. I'm a real planner. So having done all this work to kind of free up my mind and free up my kind of like yeah. unconscious head, I'll then really plan meticulously. I will know who the characters are. I'll know what the story is. I'll know what the key actions are. I'll know how many scenes are in the play, who's in each scene, what the drive of each scene is, what the objective of each scene is, what the play of each scene is, yeah. what the characters want, whose scene it is, what's stopping them from getting what they want and what they do in order to get it I'll have planned that all out what time of day it is what are the conditions outside what's the weather like what's the temperature of the room like all things like that I'll have planned all that out Right. and then the very last thing that I do is I'll write write the dialogue and you've had emails from me and I'm sure everybody who's ever had an email from me will have noticed my erratic and deranged typing (laughs) (laughs) which is partly a combination of my terrible eyesight uh, even when corrected, like wearing my specs like I am at the moment, my eyesight remains pretty bad. Uh, it's a combination of that and a combination of my approach to typing. I don't know if anybody's ever seen film of the old 50s rock and roller Jerry Lee Lewis playing the piano. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But he kind of like plays with his elbow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that when, when I'm typing at his desk with his battered chair, yeah. you know, I'll just be like, really, really, really typing right. quickly. And when I'm drafting a play, I'll correct it. But when okay. I'm doing an email, I'll just be like, fuck it, send it. Right. <laughs> That's your music roots, right? You're like yeah. you're jamming in that. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So so I'll write the dialogue. Having planned it, I'll write the dialogue of the scene as quickly as I can. Okay. So with a play like Fortune, yeah, with, that's one of the longest plays that I've written. I think that's about 29,000 words. Fortune took me six days to write, and I wrote it in a in a garden, in a house, with, out in a porch outside a house in Melbourne. Uh, but 29,000 words, right? If you think about the maths of mm. that, if I'm doing that six days, that says 30,000 for the sake of mathematical simplicity, that's 5,000 words a day. Yeah. If, you, if you're at your desk at 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, you can do 5,000 words by 5 o'clock and I'll just fucking get it done. Yeah. Get the first draft done. But what I'll do is I won't, I don't, I'll write on Word rather than Final Draft. And Final Draft will predict character names, mm, yeah. but Word doesn't do that. And I, I, I think Screen, it's really useful to write on Final Draft right. and yes. have, have character names predicted. I think for stage, just write dialogue without character names. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's just the lines being it's spoken. Just a stream of dialogue. Yeah, yeah, just stream of dialogue. I don't do stage directions unless there's something which is really, really key and I'm worried I'm not going to remember it. Yes. And then there'll be a draft when the, the next thing that I do is I'll put character names in, mm. but rather than doing it line at a time, this is a good trick. Mm. This is a really good trick. Okay. We, I, I should put this in a book. People would right. lose their shit. <laughs> 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 yeah, rather than a line at a time, I do it a character at a time. Okay. I started off doing this because it's easier, yeah? Because right. you can copy and paste the character. Okay. So you're not having to, when you're typing's like mine, you don't need to retype the character name every time. Right. But it has an amazing accidental advantage. Okay. Which it means you read the entire play from the character's point of view, yeah. which is really good practice yeah. to make sure when you write a play, you've read it from the point of view of each of your characters. Yes. So you, you chart their psychological and right. emotional journey. Yeah individually so that it's all code and all makes sense and has a sense of movement and progression which is when you give it to an actor that's what they're looking for yes. and, and it's a really good way of accidentally doing that so I'll put the character names in character at a time yeah make sure there's, sh- there's a shape and sense to each of the each of the stories 
then check, then check the spelling, which right. for me is a lot. I'm fascinated by the notion, Daniel Kahneman's notion, that when we're thinking, we th- there are some thoughts we have which we think quickly and mm. some thoughts we have which we think slowly. Yes. And for the healthy mind, you need to think both fast and slow. Yeah. 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 And my typing deranged Jerry Lee Lewis rock and roll style typing means I think very quickly. And then checking the spelling means I go through very, 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 very slowly. And then I'll put the stage directions in and that's when I'll get a sense of the draft of the thing. Yeah. I, I love that. There's something about... Um not thinking about it being a document when you're trying to, when you're hearing, when you're tuning into dialogue. Mm. It was Russell T. Davis who was talking once about keeping, he said, keep, keep dialogue quicksilver. Yeah. And, you know, the minute you start to do character names and scene directions, you're suddenly writing a document. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You that know, can all come it, later when yeah. it's time to think more slowly. Yeah. When it's time to really shape it and measure it. And you need both thoughts. Yeah. I love the notion of quicksilver. I think mm. that's, Russell T. Davis is an amazing oh. speaker about writing. Oh. He's a great writer but he's also a great teacher of writing Mm, yeah I was listening to Simon's interview recently on the Royal Court Playwrights podcast with Timberlake Wardenbaker, and I was taken by something she said this notion that all any of us are capable of doing is writing about the same thing whatever the plot or the characters on some level we're exploring the human condition we're united as humans by this idea that we're all born and we'll all die that much is certain all we can do is try to make sense of the bit in the middle the barren wasteland of act two as it were yeah and that's that's it right that's, yeah. that's what we're doing as writers we're yeah just, for some reason we feel the need to do it publicly and share it with people but you've got to imagine even non-writers are asking those same questions whether it's coffee with a friend or whatever I think that I think that. I do think that. You know, I don't think I'm the only person on, like, this street who spends time dwelling on the notion of mortality. You know, I'm sure my next-door neighbours up there do. I'm sure the guys, definitely the guys running the temple up the street do. I'm sure, you know, I'm surrounded by teachers, doctors, and a, and a temple as well as neighbours. But just like people on the fucking tube, man. Yeah. Like, I think everybody, um, everybody, regardless of your professional position, will have a moment where you're... You're you're kind of touched by the inexorability of your own death. You'll have a moment where you see Homo sapien as a primate, a kind of strange primate wandering around upright in clothes, muttering at one another in ways that seem to communicate ideas. Yeah. Or or you'll you'll see the kind of balletic grace of the way a human can navigate, say, a train station. You know, do you know what I mean? Look, if, you, if, you, if you imagine, if you were to replace, like, Waterloo Station or King's Cross or whatever, if you were to replace all the humans in that train station with dogs, right, 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 <laughs> yeah. right, right. and you watch the way they moved around in order to do the thing, you'd be like, what an incredible animal. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that, that's not a unique thought. That's just, right. we find ourselves in a position where we're condemned to, not condemned, that's yeah. an interesting slip. Well, compelled, yes, yes. compelled <laughs> to, to to make sense of those observations and, and give them some kind of form or shape or story, yeah. you know. Has the success of Curious Incident, has it given you the freedom to think, I have nothing to prove now, I'm going to write the players that I want to write, you know, not be stifled by any kind of need to have anything produced or mm-hmm. for it to be good enough or whatever? Right. Or has the success of Curious Incident, have you set yourself a different kind of bar that now you feel... Gosh, it's a really, really good question. And I know that we've got a time impediment, yeah. so I, I don't know how to answer that economically. So let me try. Uh, it's, it's kind of done both of those things and other things as well. And I think all of us as writers, we live with a kind of like contradictory sense of our own self. Mm. 
you know, there will be times when rare times that we feel confident about what we're doing. And that feels quite exciting. Yeah. The times like when you asked me about what teacher Simon would make of my working life, where I think, Oh fuck, maybe I've not fucked everything up. <laughs> but I think mostly writers write from a position of profound self doubt and anxiety. <clears throat> I think it's kind of a professional hazard. It's one of the hazards of the job. Right. I think every writer I've spoken to lives with a sense that probably they're a fraud. Yes. And I think that definitely is, is the case with me. Right. I always talk about having the voice in my head. Which, for some reason, for some reason, this is odd. Like a neurologist or a therapist would be able to identify why this is. When I visualize getting an idea, it's over my left shoulder. Yeah. yeah. When I think, oh, there's an idea for a play over there, I always yeah. mime as though it's kind of like over my left shoulder. When I think about the voice of self doubt, it always sits on my right shoulder. Okay. And the, there's always been a voice on my right shoulder whispering my in my ear, telling me how shit I am. Right. And when I was in my twenties yeah. and I was working as a school teacher in Dagenham or mm. working as a bartender at the Riverside Studios or, or or as a glass collector in the Good Mixer in Camden in the 90s which looking back on it is a really cool job to have had yeah. but at the time it was fucking shit right, right. The, and I was trying to be a writer the voice was just laughing at me telling me how shit I am and I was never going to make it and I was kidding myself if I thought I was Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in the early years at the Royal Court after I'd been made resident dramatist there the voice changed this voice is always supple and, and it's a shapeshifter and it's smart uh, and the voice was like, ah, yeah, you know, all this is an administrative error. Right, right. You, know, you know, there's another Simon Stevens. Right. And, and, and soon Ian Rickson, who, who's changed your life by making you the resident dramatist at the Royal Court is going to call you. Yes. And he's going to say, this is awful, but yeah. actually your residency should have gone to this other Simon Stevens right. <laughs> who's going to end up being the head of the NHS. <laughs> Um, so, that, so, and, and then, and then there was a time like kind of between like 2007, 8, 9 to 12 with like Seawall, Punk Rock, Harper Regan, Curious Incident, Three Kingdoms, where the voice was like, ah, oh, everybody's fucking lying to you. Mm, they all tell okay. you it's good. They're lying. You know, they're just lying. When they tell you that they think your play is good, you know that as soon as you leave the room, they look at each other and just yeah. like fucking shameful. The, um, and, and in the last kind of few years, the voice has been saying to me, well, I'll give you this. You know, you had a good few years. Seawall to Curious Incident with Three Kingdoms in there. That was decent. Okay. But pretty much since then, everything you've written has been embarrassing. And the only reason people read it is because they think you're successful and they feel like they ought to. But it's just awful. <laughs> and really, the, the kindest thing to do for everybody would be just to stop, right? <laughs> Um, so the curious, so that the advantage of Curious Incident was we bought this house before Curious Incident. It was a lucky find in a strange street, but there are things I'm able to do financially that I wasn't able to do until mm. Curious Incident, and that changed my life. So Ian Rickson making me resident dramatist, and Mark Haddon. When I spoke earlier about having luck, you know, sharing the residency at the National Theatre with Mark Haddon at the same time, that was really good fortune. Mm. Being friends with him and being collaborators with him before the adaptation, really his plays and talking to mm. him about our kids and about music and about writing that was really good fortune yeah. and then him asking me to make that adaptation yeah. financially changed all our life right. you know that is just really fucking fortunate yeah. the other good fortune was being born in 1971 my working life started towards the end of the 90s and the start of the noughts when it happened that the British economy was in pretty good nick mm. and it happened that we had a government that was committed to the arts and the amount of money that Tony Blair's Labour government put into the arts in between 1998 and 2001 really changed the nature of playwriting right, and theatre yeah, yeah. and it led to things like the Young Writers Programme at the Royal Court if it had been a Tory government they wouldn't have spent the money on the arts mm. 
uh, and they certainly wouldn't have spent the money on new writing. So that was really, really fortunate. Um, throughout the noughts, I was always writing the play that I wanted to write mm-hmm. rather than the play that I felt would make money. I'd never written a play. I've yeah. never written a play. Yeah. Even Curious Incident, I didn't take a commission for it. I wasn't paid for it to nice. write that play. Okay. You know, I wrote that for my kids and for Mark because he was my mate. The thing that I was able, that I've been able to do since Curious Incident is not do telly development. Because nice. I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of television as a writer. Me and my family are watching Dennis Kelly's Utopia at the moment. And it's glorious. It's fucking great. Dennis Kelly is a fucking great writer. You know, we loved Lucy Preble's Succession. We watched mm. that together. So it's not just Lucy, is it? But she's, yeah. I'm biased because she's my friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, television writing at its best is just exquisite. I just can't do it. Yeah. And whenever I've tried, it feels like a lie. And yeah. and the the advantage of Curious Incident, where I could say, do you know what I want to do? I want to I want to write a, a piece for the theatre upstairs at the Royal Court with Imogen Knight, which right. is going to be weird and everybody's going to be freaked out and not really know what to make of it. But yeah. with Gazelle Twin and Imogen Knight, and it's going to be really fucking loud and it's going to be great. And that was Nuclear War. Right. And <laughs> you yes. know, like nobody came to see it, but, yeah. but it was fucking brilliant for me not the sh- I think the show was good but I think the process was amazing that's what Curious has got me okay. the freedom to make work like that and to not have to take televisual uh, commissions and and also the deep paranoia that it's all going to end at any moment right okay 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 <laughs> so that doesn't go away I'm going to jump to um, Blindsided just because it's I think my absolute favourite of, of all oh, of your works oh that's hipster <laughs> <laughs> thank you I don't I'm know really it's... really touched that you oh, like really? that play yeah yeah I'm proud of that really proud of that play I don't yeah. know whether it was as a, as a maybe as a parent right. um, I love the arena that you were playing in and being able to go to such a dark place and I wondered right. in order to create something like that did you have to draw on every kind of worst nightmare as a parent and turn that into a story or into those characters? How much of being a parent informed the writing of that? In my experiences of writing, Blindsided were largely kind of joyful, weirdly. Mm. It was like a happy play to write. Mm. Quite often the darkest plays are quite happy things to write. Right. So there were other things that were sitting in that play that... Um, that, that came from a position of love rather than a position of fear. Okay. So it was written for a specific actor. It was written for Katie West. Right. The Manchester actor uh, to play. I'd worked with her in punk rock and I thought she was amazing. I thought she had an incredible sense of truthfulness. And I enjoyed imagining her in my mind. That was a happy place to be. Um, it was kind of l- partly the reason it's called the title is, is a title that was kind of stolen from a Bonnie Vare song. Mm from his album Forever Forever and it's it's a very beautiful song and it's a kind of very gentle song and I knew that there needed to be a kind of gentleness in the play somehow when I was writing the play to a real degree there was an attempt to capture this colour of that Bonnie Vare song the other thing that's very present in that play two things are present in that play one um, I remember I was in the kitchen and the Smith song Suffer Little Children came on I don't know if you know that song, but it's, it's yeah. quite a controversial song in the yeah. early life of the Smiths right, right. before Morrissey was a fascist. You're right. Uh, and it's an emotional exploration of the experiences of the children of, who were killed by uh, Ian Brady and Mara Hindley. Oh, is that what it's about? Yeah. Uh, and when, when I was growing up in Manchester in the 70s, that was still very present. The Moors murderers were still very present. So I was moving in towards that space, the space of nostalgia, the space of music. That play's set on 1979 and 1997. 
yeah? yeah, the election of Margaret Thatcher, the election of Tony Blair, yeah. and it was an attempt to really look at Britain through the prism of those two elections. The, so there's, to me, there's a weird amount of hope in that play, and also it's a study on Medea, you know, yes. scene yes. by scene, yes. scene by scene, Blindside. If you look at you look yeah. at Medea, scene by scene, and look at Blindsided, scene by scene, yeah. there are real analogies between even the two. That, and it is. So even like the gift of the dress, right? When she when she gives um, uh, her mate her dress, yeah, yes. You know, in the scene where she kind of says, I know you, I know you've been fucking him. Mm. Um, you know, all of those things come out of Medea. So an awful lot was just fun to write. Yeah. But I do think when I look at my peers by age and, you know, my peers by age are people like Anthony Nielsen and Conor McPherson and Sarah Kane, Joe Pennell. They all started slightly before me. They all had their first plays produced professionally slightly before me. Right. And I'm trying to contextualise my work in comparison to them. And I think what I did, I wrote about people with parents and people with children, yeah. you know, in a way that Kane and Nielsen and Pennell and even McPherson to a degree, less less McPherson, had written about orphans. Mm. You know, Mark Ravenhill's plays are just full of people who don't have parents. Nice. Sarah's plays, the parents are always off stage. Yes. You know, Joe's plays, the parents are always off stage. Yeah. And in my plays, I just put parents and kids back on stage as early as like Bluebird, yeah. you know, and Herons. Yeah. Uh, there's a pernicious aphorism by the uh, literary critic Cyril Connolly that's sometimes mistakenly attributed to T.S. Eliot, which is that the, the child in the hallway is the enemy of creativity. Um, you know, the, the pram in the hallway. The yes. pram in the hallway is the enemy of creativity. And I found the opposite to be true. Right. I write because of my children. I write yeah. to feed my children. Uh, I write because my sense of my own humanness was recalibrated and defined by being a parent. Uh, I think playwrights write, as we said earlier, we write about humans. Yeah. We write about human animals. Yeah. I've found no better way of coming to think about what a human is mm. than to make three of them and watch them grow up yeah. and all the complicatedness of that. And the other thing, apart from teaching and writing, that is fundamentally predicated on the necessity even now, even now, 2022, and this kind of like these juddering aftershocks of the pandemic as Europe engages in war for the first time in six decades, uh, as the ecology crumbles and the Senate overrules Biden's attempts to even somewhat stall that crumbling. Even now, even now, if you're going to write, if you're going to make theatre, if you're going to teach, if you're going to parent, you need to do so from a position of optimism. And I think that optimism has coursed through my veins since my kids were born and continues to today. Which brings us to our final scene and just time for me to ask Simon to leave us with his top tip for maintaining a healthy writing practice. Look after your body. Don't drink too much. Don't think that there's an equation between self-destruction and creativity. There's really not. Look after your mind. Slow down. Breathe. Don't worry about the career. You will have a voice on your shoulder. All of us have voices on our shoulders. I've spoken to fucking Carol Churchill about her self-doubt. If Carol Churchill experiences self-doubt. We all do, right? It's a professional hazard. So acknowledge its presence. The only time my voice goes away is when I'm writing. Don't think about the career if you can possibly avoid it. I never use the word career, ever. I've replaced it with the, with the phrase working life. Yes. Yeah? And I think that's a really useful thing for me to do. Yeah. Think about the work. You can't change. There are things. Things will happen in the in the working world around you that you can't change. You can't change who the artistic directors are. You can't change who, who the arts council are funding. You can't change those things. All you can change is your work. It's the old Alcoholics Anonymous prayer. 
find the grace to kind of identify what you can change and commit to changing that and don't worry about the other stuff and write with love write with optimism write with faith if you write for theatre know that the actors are your best friends yeah um, you don't need to do a workout every day but you need to think every day uh, read read really read read as many plays as you can surround yourself with books surround yourself with other arts surround yourself with films surround yourself with music have faith in other people Brilliant. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a wonderful opportunity to come into your world and First chat with you. First interview in this room, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a real, real pleasure. Yeah. Really, really nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Oh, what a treat it was to spend a few hours with Simon in his writing room and share the highlights with you here. He was so generous with his time and wisdom. I love the case Simon makes for the importance of distractions and thinking time in order to gestate our ideas. Never again will I assume procrastination comes at the expense of a prolific writing career. I'm off now to alphabetise my bookshelf and bask guilt-free in creative boredom. As always, you can message me on Twitter and Instagram at Paul Kalbergi, or send me an email via the contact form on my website, paulkalbergi.com. Let me know which episodes you've enjoyed the most and feel free to share any thoughts or ideas for future episodes too. Until then, stay inspired. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes.